Well, good morning again. Please open with me in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We will all but finish this letter today. I hope to actually finish it next week. Paul writes, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed... You fail to meet the test. I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything apart against, excuse me, cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you. And when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. The central point here is that Paul urges the Corinthians to give proof of the Christ that is in them by demonstrating the holiness required of them. He urges the Corinthians to give proof of the Christ that is in them by demonstrating the holiness required of them. Just like in verse 14 of chapter 12, he says, I'm coming for the third time. He starts out, this is the third time I am coming to you, he says. And he says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is the Deuteronomic principle that we've seen again. It is the number of folks mentioned in the second step of church discipline. It is the number of folks required to entertain a charge against an elder. And what this suggests here is this is this is legal kind of a language. This is something more formal. He is not saying that every time you have something against someone, there needs to be three witnesses. No, he's saying with regard to my coming, relative to my coming for a third time, the charges need to be established by two or three witnesses because there, there is going to be something more formal. There is going to be something like a hearing. There's going to be some kind of church meeting where things are going to go down. And in that context, the charges need to not be just this person said this and this person denied this and we're at an impasse because this is going to be more formal. It's not just any rebuke. Paul is going to come and make judgment. Recall his fear from verse 21 of chapter 12. Look at that with me. I fear that when I come again, my my God may humble me before you 
And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. And so he says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now, and why he's not there, right? I warn them now, as I did when I was present on my second visit, that when I come again, I will not spare them. I will not spare them. This is kind of the grace up front model. Sometimes I use this with my, my children. I explain very clearly what will happen. If you do this, this will be the consequences. I promise you, you do X, Y will happen. The grace is the clarity and the upfront nature of this conversation right here. Okay, because after we do X, this will happen. I'm just, I love you so much and I just want to let you know that the grace is getting upfront in here. Paul's saying, listen, I've done this a couple times now. Here I, here I am again, coming a third time. And when I come, I'm not sparing people. I'm not sparing people. What is, is he going to have a no-holds-barred UFC match? Is that what he means? No, of course not. He's going to do what he already suggested in 1 Corinthians when the gathered body came together, and that is going to, he's going to purge the evil from among them. He's going to be kicking people out of the church that he planted and publicly declaring people unbelievers and reprobates. That's what he's doing. That's what he says. Uh, that's what he means when he says, I'm not going to spare them. And he adds that he's doing this because of or since. So I'm not going to spare them since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking through me of Christ's power in me, as we'll see. And why would anyone think this? What, what do you mean, sense that you're seeking proof? What, what does this mean? Well, I mean, again, he's already come twice, and the problems are still here. He's come twice, he's written letters, he still have the same fears. He's going to show up, and you have people unrepentant or in sin. The idea seems to be, yeah, Paul, man, he's, he talks a big game in his letters, but when he shows up, it's like, okay, he's not impressive, he doesn't really have much. Hey, what he's going to do is he's going to come and he's going to give us a good scolding and we're just going to keep doing the same things over and over again, just like last time or just like the time before that, something like that perhaps is going on. It says, no, if you want some proof that Christ is speaking through me, you're about to get it. You are about to get it. This is the first time this word proof is used, okay, in the Greek. The ESV, I don't know why. No, I do know why, but it would take too long to explain why translates this, it's the main word that keeps showing up in this passage. The ESV translates it inconsistently so you can't see underneath what Paul is doing. So I've put the Greek here, not to be nerdy or something, but so that you can kind of see the flow of what's happening. This word proof or to approve. If you put an A in front of it, it would mean unapproved. Okay? And so you're going to see how this continues to flow through the passage. He says, he, meaning Christ, is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. So Paul is saying something about objectively the nature of Christ among them. He's saying, that's going to be key later. Christ is among you and he is powerful among you. And so, just like we heard from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, um, for he was crucified in weakness, but he lives 
by the power of God. And so the, the, for the precise theological details, we know we have a Judaizer issue there in Corinth. Um, um, people claiming heritage of Abraham is part of the problem, uh, perverting the gospel in some sense. But, it, but we do also realize from 1 Corinthians that they, were, they had an, what's called an over-realized eschatology. They, they thought things were too down, far down the road in terms of final things. And so they're saying, well, there isn't a, a future resurrection. Okay, that's already been realized in some sense. We have, a, we have a Christ. We live in resurrection power. And the idea may very well be, and this is consistent with Paul always identifying with his own weakness and boasting, that Paul, on your story, the Christ of the cross, it's just this anemic Jesus. Okay? This is this anemic Jesus that doesn't have power. We're looking for victory here. We're looking for victory here. And this is, where a, this is a great example of where unbalanced theology can, can really be deeply problematic. He says, Christ is not weak in dealing with you, even though he was crucified in weakness. Yes, I understand, I understand, I preach the, cruci- the crucifixion and the cross of Christ, but he is alive. He lives by the power of God. And so let me just say, to say, this is a point, to say that we worship a crucified Christ is historically accurate, but it is also incomplete. It is a little bit misleading. It's like being married to someone who's a doctor and saying, I'm married to a high school graduate. Right? Yes, that was good. That was good. It's like, it's true, but it's also misleading in one sense. It's incomplete. It's incomplete. We worship, we worship a Christ who was crucified, but the whole point, the whole gospel is that he didn't stay crucified. He can't be identified fully. He can't be constrained by that. He has been raised from the dead out of that weakness and unimaginable power and glory until all things are placed under his feet. So Paul clarifies for us here, and presumably for the Corinthians, that the Christ who wears the crown and power can only save because of the Christ who endured the cross and shame. The Christ who wears the crown and power can only save because of the Christ who endured the cross and shame. You cannot preach one without the other. You can't do it. One leaves you with victory, with no foundation or structure to how to live in light of it. The other leaves you with atonement, but no hope for a powerful life or a guaranteed future resurrection. You have to have both. You have to have the Christ of the cross and the resurrected, powerful, living Christ of the crown. Both, Paul holds out. He is not weak in dealing with you. And so, in keeping with the pattern of closely identifying with Christ throughout the letter, he says, he, he says here, For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. We are weak, he says, insofar as we identified with Christ crucified in in weakness and not appearing strong or particularly articulate by the standards of the world. But as we deal with you, Corinthians, we will have the full-blown living power of Christ. Because I'm coming to you for a third time. And if you want proof that Christ is in me, it's coming. And it's not coming in weakness. It will be coming in Power. So in summary, he says, Corinthians, prepare. Prepare. And he transitions here, but he doesn't completely change the topic. You're going to see our word pop back up. 
He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And the test word there is that same. You can tell it has a different ending. That's okay. You don't need to worry about that. You can tell it's the same root word. Approve yourselves. Give proof of yourselves. Give proof. So two different words, examine, and then the word for test or give proof, examine. So administer some kind of evaluation, take inventory of yourself, give proof of yourselves, bring something out as evidence or bring something out as reason, but toward what end? We're going to see in just a second. But he's saying, listen, if you seek proof that Christ is speaking through me, prove yourself, give proof. Give proof of yourselves with regards to whether or not you are in the faith Paul has proclaimed. So particularly in light of chapter 11 that we took a look at where he says you are tolerating. Doesn't mean they're swallowing hook, line, and sinker or anything. They are tolerating a different gospel, different spirit, different Jesus. He said you tolerate that well enough, so surely you'll tolerate what I'm saying here if you, if you remember Because examine yourself to see if you are in the faith, meaning the faith that he has proclaimed. And then we get a surprising turn. This is a surprising turn, but one that's extremely helpful for understanding what Paul is doing here. It's introduced by an or. Introduced by or, which might sound to your ear a little bit odd right here. Because what we're going to get is a rhetorical question in an unrealistic, in this case, hypothetical. We're going to get a rhetorical question, and in this case at least, an unrealistic hypothetical. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you you fail to meet the test, which again is not helpful at all for you, because fail to meet the test is the same approved word. We're going to get there in just a second. But here's, he's clearly anticipating a yes to the question. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you? It has the rhetorical effect of saying, listen, you know Christ is in you. You know Christ is in you. And that's important to understand for what's going on. He's asking, give proof that you're in the faith. You know Christ is in you. I'm asking you to give proof of yourself. And then the ironic and a bit sarcastic hypothetical is, unless, of course, you're unapproved. Unless you're unapproved. Unless you don't approve yourself. Which obviously you aren't going to do. Which obviously you aren't going to do. He knows they're not going to say, yeah, you're right, we're outside the faith. They're trying to claim that they're not, right? He knows they're not going to say, examine yourselves, see whether you you are in the faith. Christ is in you, okay? Unless you don't even pass yourself. That's the idea. You know, the ESV puts a punctuation mark here because they realize the the sarcastic nature. Look back at uh, chapter 12, 13. You have the same thing. For in what were you uh, less favored than the rest of the churches except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong! Exclamation point. He's not asking like forgiveness. For He's not entertaining that they're going to actually extend him forgiveness because he knows that, that nothing happened to even require forgiveness. Or if you look back at chapter 11, verse 21, 
you get the same thing. Um, uh, uh, no, it's not 21. Where is it? It is, be there, Tyler. It is not there. It's the, and it's the other example that you will have to find, and I'm not sure why I didn't write the right verse down. I do apologize for that. Um, oh, no, it is 1121. I just can't read numbers. Okay, so in chapter 11, verse 21, he says, you know, for you bear with it if people make slaves of you or devour you or take advantage of you. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Okay, exclamation point. Again, he's not really seriously entertaining the idea that he was too weak or something like that. He's not really apologizing. So similarly, it's the same feel here. So remember, this, this verse comes in the context of what immediately came before, which is an exhortation to repentance and holiness and what's going to come after, which he says, we do not want you to do wrong. We want you to do right. So right in the middle of those two things, it's like he goes, time out, time out. Just think for a second. Just think for a second here. Examine yourself. You tell me, would you consider yourself in the faith? Of course you would. Jesus Christ is in you. I mean, unless you're willing to admit that you're not even a legit church. That's what he's saying. So repent and don't do wrong. So here's the takeaway. Here's the takeaway. Remember who is in you and think and live in light of him, not develop a Christian self-evaluation checklist, analyzing all of your sins and make sure you can pass your assessment or you probably aren't a Christian. And that's sometimes how this kind of gets pushed. But in the context, at least, and, and by the way, you cannot totally get away from the idea of examination and self-assessment. He expects them to do that. But in the context of this particular passage, he expects that they are going to affirm that they are in Christ, which is his whole point. He's using that. He's using the fact that he, they are going to give proof of themselves. Uh, they are going to approve themselves to even make his point. So Paul goes on, he continues on, and we are going to see more of the, the approved language. He says, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Again, same word. Not the, the test makes it sound like some abstract assessment someone came up with. I hope that you will find that we're not unapproved. Now, why would he say that? Listen, given that I planted the church and I taught you the gospel and that you believe yourself to be in Christ, I certainly hope you're not going to disapprove of us. Why? Well, because you would have to tell a very interesting story about how you could approve of yourself in that case. Right? He's using their confidence to make the point. How could you approve of the faith that you are in? How could you approve yourselves that you're in the faith if you can't approve of the one who brought you the faith, taught you the faith, and planted the church? So I hope you'll consider that we, we have not uh, failed to meet the test. We, have, we are not unapproved. And then Paul turns that exhortation in the form, or turns to exhortation, excuse me, in the form of a prayer. He says, but we pray to God that you may not do Wrong. He gives us a prayer for right conduct. We plead to God on your behalf that you will not do wrong. We're praying that you will not sin. We are praying that you will be repentant. That is our prayer. But he clarifies because of what he's just said already. There's a little kind of 
parenthetical clarifier. He says, not they, that we may appear to have, and then here's our word again, been approved or meet the test as the ESV tragically continues to translate it. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. The idea here, I have it on the notes. The idea is Paul is saying, we want you to do right. We want you to repent of sin, but I'm not saying that so that it is like super obvious, clear evidence that we are legit and approved. Because that would be pretty spectacular evidence if you responded exactly this way, exactly in light of the gospel. It would validate our case pretty clearly. I'm not saying that. I want you to do good and do right just because you uh, to avoid evil and do good and, and seek the right because it's what you should do because it's pleasing to Christ even if you think that we are unapproved. Now, that would be a very difficult story to tell, how you could be consistently believe that, but still think yourselves are approved if we're the one who taught you the gospel. But listen, he's saying this is about you. He clarifies, this is about you, not about us. I'm not asking you to say yes because that vindicates my apostolic ministry. I'm asking you to pursue righteousness and, and shun and avoid sin because it is good for your souls and it's pleasing to Jesus Christ who is in you. Remember, he addresses the Corinthian church as the church of God in 1 Corinthians. He just said that Christ dwells in them. He is, is powerful in dealing with them. And so he's saying, live in light of who is in you. And he gives this proverbial sounding little statement, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Sounds a bit like a tautology, which is something that is basically said twice or repackaged, but essentially is the same thing. And the idea seems to be, it seems to be what Paul's saying, and the commentators differ on why this got included here, what he is exactly going for. But it seems to me that as far as his actions go, whether or not um, his actions are dictated by whether or not they're in accordance with truth. He, he wants, he hopes for approval in this sense. We hope that you will find we have not failed the test or hope that you will find we are not unapproved. But he is not captive to people's opinions or evaluations about him. He is ultimately captive to the truth, which is why he, he's proclaiming these things. He's not proclaiming these things so that he can vindicate himself primarily. He is claiming, he, he is, he is exhorting them to these things because it's good for their soul. And it represents the Christ that is in them and dealing with them powerfully. And he continues on in seemingly just this kind of one long breath. He gives us the reemergence of the weak, strong antithesis that we saw from the full speech. He said, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. So this time, what's odd about this use, or maybe not, maybe odd is too strong of a word, but in the full speech, he's saying that he applies both the, the weakness and the strength to himself. I'm weak in this way, but I'm actually strong in this way. Right? Here, he breaks it up and he says, the weakness applies to him, but he's saying the strength applies to the church at Corinth. So what do we make of this if we're listening carefully to the text here? What are we supposed to make? Well, certainly weakness applied to Paul has been explained pretty well. 
And particularly in this case, perhaps he feels he could be potentially regarded, potentially not approved. He feels his weakness. He feels his ability to cause these people to repent and believe the gospel because he's not God. So here's the situation. But But the strength that he ascribes to the Corinthians, I think we have to understand in the context as their obedience, their repentance, their holiness. In other words, living in victory over sin living in the strength of the resurrection. He's just urged them to repent and then flee from evil and then pursue what is good. And he's about to tell them, if you go down one more verse, uh, actually the second part of the verse, he's going to pray for their restoration. Okay? Repentance. So sandwiched right in all that, you get this, we are weak, but you are strong. It seems like, again, what he's saying is, We're happy to encounter challenges and suffering and have our authority questions if that means you're standing strong in the faith. If that means you are standing strong in the faith. And that is certainly what he wants the church at Corinth to do. He's happy to be seen as a, quote, fool. He's happy to suffer. He's happy to pour pour himself out like a drink offering if, if, it means that they will be standing strong in the faith of Jesus Christ. So the strength here, I think we must understand if we're going to honor the context of the passage to be people who are heeding the very things that he is saying. And finally, he concludes, he says, for this reason, gives a bit of a purpose statement. For this reason, I write these things. That while I am away from you, Excuse me, for this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. He says, I've been pointed here. I've been very direct. I've said things that perhaps could even rub you the wrong way, but I am saying these things so that when I show up, the legit bona fide apostolic authority authority that I have, I don't have to use it to not spare people. I can use it to build up instead. I'm front-ending the grace here. I'm telling you, this is the third time I am coming. I will not spare you. There is hope in the gospel. Hey, examine yourselves even. You tell me, look, Christ is in you. How, should the, how then should you live? We pray for your restoration to come so that your life comes in line with who dwells in you, Paul is saying. And so Paul urges the Corinthians to give proof of the Christ that is in them by demonstrating the holiness required of them. How do we take this from Paul's situation into our own lives? I said that we cannot get past examining ourselves. And we can't. We must look at ourselves and say, is Christ in me? Do I believe these things? Do I desire to live in light of these things? Despite the fact that the primary purpose of 2 Corinthians 13.5 is not the the made-up self-assessment that you try to pass and score your own test and doing that. Okay, that's not the main idea. In the context, Paul assumes that they're going to pass the test. But certainly a call to all of us to think, do I believe this gospel? Maybe you're a child here. Do I have my parents' faith or is it really my own? 
do I sit in the chairs and come here and I kind of believe these things and it's like, well, well, sounds good, but like, do I really believe them or do I, do I have my parents' faith? Or maybe maybe it's just your family or your tradition or whatever. You just This is something you've been doing for a long time. There's opportunity to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith that Paul proclaims. Or whether in your family's faith or your parents' faith, your friends' faith, something like that. But how, after we've gotten past that point, we said, yes, Christ is in fact in me. How do we live in light of living power? He says, in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So if someone said, well, pastor, how do I live by the power of God? What I want to do, I want to give you four practical ways to take that from being a very compelling sounding theological statement to something that is actionable in your life. Okay, four practical takeaways in terms of living in the power that Christ says we can live in. Because of the resurrected Christ, okay? The first is we seek God where He has revealed Himself. And this is primarily revealed in the Word and prayer. Now, I understand, brothers and sisters, is this may seem like a tired application, after all. Um, but how can you not start right here? Prayer, James says, is powerful and effective. These are the words of eternal life. This is where God has revealed Himself specially. And so you can't move away from pursuing God in the Word and prayer if you're going to live a powerful Christian life. You can't move on to practical steps for victory with a foundation of sand. I remember when I was a, I was a, maybe a teenager, 13, 14, and I was trying to get into weightlifting. Well, I wasn't trying. I was getting into weightlifting. And I remember the, my first thought was, you know what I need? Some supplements. i got to get an edge on the field. So my dad was like, oh, this makes me nervous or whatever. He took me to the little supplement store. This massive dude, this massive guy, took so many steroids he had to. But anyways, he was barely fit through a door. Um, he was like, hi there. And, uh, and my dad was like, you know, try to explain our little project there in the supplement store. And and so what he was like, oh, you know what they need? They need to do some like good body weight exercises and maybe some protein powder. That would be good. And I was like, no, that's not what I came here for. I didn't come here to hear about protein powder and push-ups, my good man. No, 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 I didn't. Uh, see that little case over there that says 18 plus? I need you to sell my dad some of those, all right? Because that's how you get jacked. And um, you know what I didn't want to do? I didn't want to take the, in some cases, not nearly as exciting and certainly not nearly as as fast approach to building a really strong foundation for weight training and muscle building. I didn't. I wanted the fast track. Brothers and sisters, there is no fast track to sanctification and living a powerful Christian life. You have to have your protein and your basic. This is this the, the word and prayer is just the foundation. You got people, oh, what need my marriage best practices? Well, what about our communication? Well, what about this and that? So do you spend time pursuing God in the word of prayer? No. It's like how, how can you how, we have to start there? That's we have to start with the word and prayer because that's where God has revealed himself. That's what's powerful. If you want to live a powerful Christian life, 
You've got to start where God has revealed himself. You can't just say, I want I want these other practical little things that give me an edge without a solid foundation. And it's just like an athlete. If you ever watch a basketball player, like really good, really honestly, any, any athlete, their basics and their fundamentals are so good. They can just sit there and dribble, 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 dribble. Or that, the sticking, you've seen hockey players do this amazing sticking in and out of cones and this and that. Their fundamentals are so good. They're not just out there working on the trick shots. But because they have such good fundamentals, it allows them to do things that you and I can't do. Because they have such a solid foundation. It's so solid. So number one is, if you want to practically live a powerful Christian life, you must seek God where He has revealed Himself. Number two, we stay attuned to evidence of God's working that gives shape to His presence. Evidence of God's working that gives shape to His presence. Sometimes we consider the prospect of Christ in us. Christ with us in power. And if we're honest, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like much power sensing is going on. In an amazing passage, Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthian church, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. He says, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And notice, this is astonishing. This is an astonishing little passage, little verse. Notice how Paul parallels in that verse, looking into a a mirror in, in low light with our current knowledge of God. So even in his own life, I mean, he's the one, he's saying we, in his own life, and for a man who literally went to heaven. Remember, for a man who literally went to heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, I was caught up to paradise, caught up to third heaven. The personal daily acquaintance with God falls short of what we're really wanting. He says that's going to be the case. We can make out something that seems glorious. We can remember peaks, powerful personal peaks of that glory. Maybe it felt like God was just right there in the room with us. We can understand facts about it, but we can't know what we are looking at in a way that feels satisfactory to our souls at all points whenever we want it. It's just going to be elusive in this life because we're looking in a dimly lit mirror. That's what he says. He doesn't say there's a prospect in this life of getting a real polished up mirror and a ton of light. In this age, we will know God truly, but we will not know Him in a way that will that, that completely satisfies our souls. We will always want to know more of God. We will always wonder, perhaps, are we doing something wrong? But what I'm saying is that no verse captures the paradoxical reality that we are guaranteed to not know the presence of God, that to be as acutely aware of, sense directly, feel constantly. That's what I mean. We are guaranteed to not have that in a way that ultimately satisfies us in this life. We long for more. We can remember exceptional moments where that appeared to be the case, but we should remember that our holy discontentment right here is not necessarily owing to any lack of sin or any problem of ourselves. Instead, it is a part of the plan until faith turns to sight. And then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. And so what we do is we press on And we watch God work in our lives as concrete evidence of His presence. 
love, and power, while our faithful pursuit of God, as we can experience Him now, serves as a purposefully dramatic teaser to our knowledge of God as it will be one day. So the key here is we stay attuned to the evidence of God working because your feelings of God's presence will lie to you. And this is one of the reasons why. So perhaps the best way to explain this, and I think this is very helpful to remember if you're going to cultivate a powerful life in the presence of God, is the FedEx arrow. Okay? The FedEx arrow. Everyone knows the FedEx arrow, right? Right there? Okay? Some of y'all didn't know the FedEx arrow, apparently. Notice that's what going that, that what is going on that draws your eye gives clear shape to what's there, even if it isn't obvious at first sight. Even if it isn't obvious at first sight. So what I want to suggest is part of living with Christ by the power of God here is leaning into his presence as evidenced by his working. Because our feelings will lie. What, how, what is God doing in you and around you where that gives shape to, oh wow, God is clearly with me here and I'm not purely relying on my feelings as some weather vane or litmus test to see about God's presence. What I'm saying is that for many of us, Christ will show up just like this arrow. We'll say, I don't see Him. And then you'll say, oh wait. What my eye is drawn to, if I'm thinking about it, will give shape to his very obvious presence. Number two. Number two. Number three, we maintain vibrant connection to the body and family of Christ. This one is just so straightforward. God has designed his power to be manifested in the body. He is powerful among you all. And the truth is, isolated sheep get picked off by wolves. They go astray very easily. Are you someone who's known... Are you pressing into this body or some other body? We're not fawning after members here. We want you to thrive in some other church, perhaps. But are you plugged into the body of Christ? Are you known? Do you know other people? Do you, do you have and desire accountability with other believers? Do you get to use your gifts? Do you want to have others help mold you into the image of Christ? Do you want to see and taste gospel forgiveness and redemption actually lived out in front of you as a demonstration of Christ's power, then connection is non-negotiable. Being plugged in is key. Being vibrantly connected to the body is absolutely required to live a powerful Christian life. And then finally, we seek to live in righteousness. Now this one might surprise you a little bit. But people who, who, people who live righteous lives tend to live the most powerful lives in Christ. Let me give a workout, the workout illustration again. You know, you put in effort to lift weights or strength train. And uh, maybe you feel good about yourself. Maybe your heart gets healthier. But something else happens too. You know, it, it tears down muscle. And then that muscle is rebuilt. That's how the whole muscle building process works, right? You tear down muscle. Get some protein in there. Muscle rebuilds, but it rebuilds just a tiny bit more. And a tiny bit more. And guess what happens when you get a little bit more muscle? Well, now you can go lift heavier weight than you could. And what does heavier weight do? It tears down more muscle. 
You don't just you just you don't just exercise. You actually get stronger by doing the thing. It actually has effects. And then you can lift more weight. And again, and that tears down more muscle and on and on. So there's the saying that the rich get richer. Uh, and in one sense, in the kingdom of God, spiritually, that's also true. You can see that in the Gospels. He who has nothing will even have that taken away. But the strong get stronger. The strong get stronger in the Christian life. And by the way, that doesn't mean that the weak can't get stronger. That's not what it's saying. They say as you get strength, there is a, there is a uh, exponential snowball effect that you will have. Uh, because when you strive to, strive to live righteously, uh, you will develop spiritual muscle memory for living righteously. And like with many other things, once you have some muscle memory in terms of how to react versus not react, how you should think and take your thoughts captive, once you, have, once you have so much muscle memory, spiritual muscle memory built up doing those things, you can widen the scope of your intentionality to focus on other areas, and some of those elements will just flow out of you because you have ingrained them so long as you walk forward, as you have walked forward. And, and that's really great news, not just as an observation, but because God blesses the righteous. It's clear, Psalm 512, bless the righteous, O Lord, cover him with favor as with a shield. There's no theology of the wicked getting covered in favor. And about Psalm 37, the law of God is in the righteous man's heart. His steps don't slip. You cannot get away from the fact that God blesses and crowns the righteously lived life. Not to be confused with perfect righteousness, which no one has and only Jesus provides, but a life that is above reproach and pressing on towards holiness is a powerful life. It will be a powerful life and it will be ever increasing in that power by the grace of God. The people who you know who live the most powerful Christian life and have the largest unwavering faiths live in righteousness, guaranteed. They do. And so that's the final element I'll suggest today in order to live in light of who is in you. We seek God where He has revealed Himself. We stay attuned to evidence of God's working that gives shape to His presence. We maintain vibrant connection to the body and family of Christ. And then we seek to live in righteousness. Let's pray. God, we desire to be a people who heed the word of the Apostle Paul here to repent, to avoid what is evil, to pursue what is right and good. God, only by your grace can we accomplish this. And so we beg for it. We're like Moses who says, show us your glory so that we can be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room, even considering these steps, how might they Go appropriate some of these things to live in power and victory because of the crucified but now risen and alive Christ. Lord, we pray that you would deal powerfully and dwell powerfully among us and that we would have an awareness of your presence both corporately and personally. Lord, bring us to repentance where we need to repent. If there are small pockets of our heart that we would just prefer the gospel not enter, would you break down those strongholds? If we're sinning in ways that we're trying to cover up, we pray that you'd have that found out. Lord, help us live in the light 
Help us live in resurrection power, we 